listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. From March 21st to the 23rd, the Society of Electroacoustic Music in the United States, or Seamus, held its annual national conference. This year's host was the Berkeley College of Music and Boston Conservatory at Berkeley in Boston. There were 11 concerts, several paper sessions, and a lot of new electronic music. I attended to present my eight-channel work for fixed media called Lingering Garden, which, if you're interested, can be found on my Bandcamp page, robertwmcclair.bandcamp.com, or on YouTube as it was choreographed by Lydia Hance of Frame Dance. In between concerts, I was able to catch up with nine composers, whose work was also featured at the conference. In this first episode, we'll focus on composers whose pieces included a live instrumentalist and electronics. We'll start with Eleni Lilios. We featured Eleni before on episode 15 with our first Overdrinks. Her name seems to come up a lot, probably because she happens to be a composer whose work I admire and respect quite a bit. She is currently Director of Composition Activities for the Splice Institute and is Professor of Composition and Coordinator of Music Technology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. So I'm sitting here with Eleni Lilios, and we're just outside the president's reception. Almost, almost done. Two concerts left, and on the next concert, we're going to hear your new work entitled "Undertow" for bass clarinet and live electronics. So, tell me about you know how did this piece come about? Where did it Where did it come from? Thank you for inviting me to talk to you, Rob. This is really a treat. My piece, Undertow, was commissioned by the Delian Academy for New Music, which meets every summer on the island of Mykonos in Greece. Mm-hmm. And when I was invited to teach there, I was also invited to compose a new piece that would premiere at the Summer Academy, at one of the concerts on the Summer Academy. And there was an ensemble called Zone Experimental, who's based in Basel, Switzerland. I was invited to compose for any subset or the whole group. And I had never composed for bass clarinet, and I thought, and I, I went to the bass clarinetist's website, and he really is a monster new music player, lots of extended techniques, and I thought, I'm going to write a bass clarinet piece for this particular person. And that's how this piece started. So where how does how does undertow kind of play into the concept that you're you're following with this piece? Undertow is a little bit different than many of the pieces I've been writing recently. I had been historically, over the last uh, 10 years or so, working with uh, poetry by Wally Swist, who lives in Amherst, Massachusetts, which isn't terribly far from here in Boston. We're in Boston right now. And I just, I don't know where Undertow came from, but it is not inspired by Wally Swift's poetry. It's actually inspired by the techniques themselves. So when I started thinking about bass clarinet, I went to Heather Roche's website, and I started listening to a number of her recordings and looking through her very, very extensive blog about clarinet, bass clarinet, extended techniques, and I found these undertone multiphonics and came to the discovery that you could, not only could you play these multiphonics, but you can trill between them. And so these undertone multiphonics became the basis for this piece. 
And then another thing I discovered on her website are these double trills, mm. which are four-note trills on the bass clarinet. So, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And so I just structured the piece around these techniques, which is a very something a little bit different for me this time. So with the with the double trills, are you pretty much constricted in terms of the sets of pitches you can do, or um, it, it would would only work you know on this pitch, this pitch, that pitch, and that pitch? So different fingerings produce different pitches, and to be honest with you, I'm not 100 percent sure how it works. <laughs> so you know, um, on Heather Roach's website, she has a number of these double trills, and she has a big chart of them. And so there is a primary pitch, and then there are three other pitches, and you have two different fingerings. And so I think we would have to ask a clarinetist really how it works, and I've talked to my clarinetists about how it works, and I still don't get it. (laughs) But what I do know is that when I make the notation with the primary note and then three additional small trill notes Mm -hmm. and the two fingerings, somehow they know exactly what to do. That's the important thing. right? Somehow it works. Right, exactly. That's great. Um, You know, you were talking about... you're using a I would say the first what half first half of the piece probably is uh, multiphonics and yes. and trilling between multiphonics and um, one thing I think I'm hearing in the electronics and I want to confirm with you is that there is a layer in the electronics that is filtered noise that's it okay good <laughs> and I, I just thought that was um, that was such a uh, basically when you play a multiphonic on a bass clarinet or really any instrument you're gonna have some air also escaping so it's not the pure the pure tone of a clarinet anymore so kind of instead of saying well uh, you know I, I have this air but I really don't want the air you went the other way and said I have this air what can I do with it how can this be part of the piece right that is the Kind of the downfall, I guess, of this. There, there are a number of downfalls with what I have done in this bass clarinet piece. <laughs> One of them is the fact that these these multiphonics do tend to be very airy. They are undertone multiphonics, which means they will never be loud. That's a problem. Uh, they are very, very delicate. That's a problem. They are very difficult to produce. That's a problem. They are very <laughs> difficult to sustain over time. A problem. Yeah. And they have have a lot of air and noise in them problem. So I use this filtered kind of noise that sort of floats in and out as a way to try to seam seam all of those things together. And so I was really kind of hoping that that filtered noise would be not so noticeable, but I guess it is. So Well, I've listened to it a couple times okay. in preparation, so, so nice. <laughs> But so, yeah, this piece is fraught with many, many challenges. And I've been very fortunate to have now three bass clarinetists who have put their time and energy and talents into really making the piece work because it's beastly difficult. It looks very easy on the page, but it is very difficult. Uh, So I have Ugu Keritos from Basel, Switzerland, who played the premiere. And then Derek Emsch, who is a doctoral candidate at Bowling Green State University who played the second performance last month. And now tonight, Amy Advocat of uh, Transient Canvas fame will be playing the third performance of the piece here at Seamus. 
Um, I was speaking recently with Lindsay Goodman, who uh, did, did Among Fireflies, was that written for her? No, not written for her, but she has played it quite a bit. And um, we, we were kind of talking about you, and she was, she was kind of detailing, you know, what she understood to be your compositional process to be. And you said that for this piece, it was something kind of different. You really structured it around the, um, the techniques that you were going to use. So how is that contrasting with, let's say, what you would quote unquote normally do? I know every piece is different, but I'm assuming there's some thread that you can follow through how you write these pieces. Yes, that's a very good question. So typically if I'm using text, like a poetry of Wally Swist or, or poetry of other poets who I've used, I use the poetry to conjure musical idea. And then I do extensive abstract sketching. I turn the abstract, abstract sketches into musical material. This time, because I was using the materials, I really, I was sort of like going on a little treasure hunt, I guess. It was a little more of a, rather than a planned process, it was more of a process of discovery, I think, that I found these techniques. I got together, actually, with Derek Empsch, who played the techniques for me. He played all these undertone multiphonics, and I took all those recordings of the undertone multiphonics, and I kind of composed an electroacoustic piece. I mean, I used those sound files to make the piece in logic. In logic, yeah, in time. Yes, and then transcribed (laughs) the piece from logic, from these recordings. So I had him record specific things that I knew I was going to maybe want, but then how the piece unfolds harmonically, texturally, and um, rhythmically, I guess, over time... Uh, is a result of the fact that I just sat in logic with these sound files and laid them out like I would do a fixed media piece. Mm -hmm. So that's very different for me in this piece. I don't usually do that. Well, and I think that really makes sense because... You know, I've, I've kind of, myself, I've kind of struggled with, you know, how do you, when, when you're working with sounds that are, you know, Sibelius or Finale, it's not going to produce it, right? Yeah. And they, they're sometimes so, uh, it, it's, you know, of course you can go to like, like a website like you did and kind of hear them, but then it's, it's the process of keeping it in your head while you're composing. And, you know, if that's on paper or, or whatever, that's, that's the part where I think it has prevented me from, from doing certain things just because it's like, well, uh, I, I have to keep so many sounds in my head just to be able to have the options to make a decision and write it down on paper and then go to, to a player. So you kind of reverse that process and said, okay, well, I'm going to need all of these sounds. But, and because it is such a piece about sound, mm-hmm. you know, that it's no, notation just kind of falls down in the composition process. It doesn't, it, it, you know, trying to write this at the piano isn't going to work. No. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, trying to deal with how you're, how you're going to deal with then live electronics on top of that. Mm-hmm. So really it was, it was vital for me to record those, all of those multiphonics and the double trills. I don't think I used everything I recorded mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And then when I got together with Ugu in Greece, 
When he arrived, we changed a couple things. Then when I went back with Derek, again, for Derek to play the piece, we changed a couple things. Amy is, you know, has her own sort of way of playing the piece. And that's really, to me, one of the beauties, I think, of writing maybe sometimes techniques that not all performers want to play. If people who play my music... It's not just about playing the notes. It's really about playing the sounds. And those sounds vary from performer to performer. Amy's undertone multiphonics are not the same as Derek's, are not the same as Ugu's. And so that's that's danger music. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the challenge with this, is that uh, you write these things in isolation in your little studio based on one person's recording. Yeah. And then when it goes out into the world, no one else is going to play those things quite the same way. And that's a really interesting part of what I'm doing that I'm not always 100% happy when I have to confess. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess you have to have the, uh, the aesthetic flexibility to be able to, you know, say, okay, well, this this performance is going to be this way I guess and and I I'm okay with that right. at least okay enough well or you get to a place where you say maybe I have created a system that in in concept is a very good system and it's solidly composed but the reality of the techniques that I have created maybe are not so foundational and then I think it becomes my responsibility as a composer to find a way to support my performers like so you know you have these undertone multiphonics you've got a funky read maybe this one isn't speaking today or uh, Amy Amy doesn't have this key on her clarinet for one of the multiphonic trills that I've asked her to do this particular brand of clarinet that she plays the key is not movable look how do you what do you substitute for that and so you know trying to make sure that you build a system that most of the time results in success yeah. for your performer. I I think that's a big lesson that I have learned with this piece. Mm. Because those those multiphonics are so fragile. Yeah. I think that 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 I I need to go back, I think, and retool some things mm-hmm. to to give my performer a bit more support in that first half of the piece. Maybe you won't put that in the thing, but maybe, maybe I won't. Maybe you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Well, let's talk about yeah. the electronics. You know, what what's going on in in the live electronics? One of the challenges with this idea of these undertone multiphonics is that they don't push a lot of sound into the system. And with live electronics, it's, you know, sound in, sound out. And if there's not enough enough material going through the patch, then you're not going to get any electronics out. So 
I built my, I use, uh, I have a toolbox, a live electronics toolbox that I built in Max that I use for all of my live electronics pieces. And this piece is no exception. I used my toolbox and I used those sound files. Oh, the, the original sound files uh, kind of against it in, in time or? Well, I, I used the sound files to create the live electronics. Uh. The sound files are not in the piece. Right. Okay. So th- that's kind of your the. If we pull the curtain up, we see the you know the man the the you know wizard running all the stuff, and that's your that's your recordings. They're the things that are getting processed. No. No. Oh. The the things. Well, I'm completely wrong. I'm sorry. I'm being, I'm probably not being very clear in how I'm talking about this. So, in order to build the live electronics, I needed. Material, oh, yes. right? So the okay. original recordings that Derek and I did, that I set out on the timeline in mm-hmm. Logic, that's the material I used to build the engine. Right. Okay. Now the performer comes in with their live signal and pushes that through the electronics to create the live electronics. Okay. And it's the usual things that I use, uh, except there are there are no sound files in this particular piece, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different for me as well. There is that noise that you identified, and then later there is a little FM synthesis drone that mm-hmm. is also being processed in real time, but just kind of a drone that comes in later to sort of try to fill in that low end a little bit. Yeah, that was that was actually going to be something I was going to ask about, because, you know, in uh, maybe around the one-third to halfway to two-thirds, you have these, like, low slaps in the clarinet mm-hmm. yes. and those kind of get extended and uh, you know processes are, are put on those slaps but I was wondering if somehow those slaps were also related to the drone but it seems like that was that was just an FM synth yeah the drone is a separate thing but this this idea of the low slaps yeah. is meant to kind of start to bring in that that low right. tessitura of the instrument because up until that point all of those undertone multiphonics are are by and large high, sort of high in the register of of the bass clarinet. And my favorite part of the bass clarinet is this super low yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so how you know how do you make that compositional shift from high material to low material? There are of course many, many ways that we can Effect that transition, and for me, it was to start kind of bringing in that low end, is just these little small punctuations that are being uh, pitch tracked and and um, kind of delayed with an exponential delay, so they kind of they bounce a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, uh, before we listen to this, um, can you tell everyone where they can find more of your music to listen to? And also, if they wanted to connect with you, how would they do that? Certainly. Thank you, Rob. So if you would like to listen to Undertow on your own at some other point, you could go to my SoundCloud page, Eleni Lilios. Just go to SoundCloud and look me up, and you can hear that piece again. If you want to reach out to me, you can go to my website, which is elilios.com, that's E-L-I-L-L-I-O-S.com, and there is a contact page there, but there you can also find information about my other pieces, you can buy scores, you can link to my YouTube page from there, you can go to SoundCloud from there. The central hub. Yeah, it's the central hub, yes, exactly. 
All right. And the recording that we're going to hear, who is the performer on that? Yes, the recording that you're going to hear is a mastered recording of Ugu Queridos, who is a member of Zone Experimental in Basel, Switzerland, playing in Mykonos, Greece. Awesome. So this is Undertow by Eleni Lilios.
Next, I sat down with Per Bloland, another Ohio colleague. Bloland is currently an assistant professor of composition and technology at Miami University in Ohio. We talked about his piece for piano and electronics right before he stepped into his dress rehearsal with pianist Keith Kirchhoff. So uh, I'm sitting here with Per Bloland, and you're about to have your sound check for uh, for this piece that you wrote, um, which is called Los Murmullitos. You say it. Okay. Well, I, I'll do my best. Los Murmullitos. Murmullitos. The double L gets a Y sound. And, yeah. Yeah. I should have known that. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway, good to see you again. We officially met. At, I I think we officially met at Splice uh, just in November. I mean, We've seen you. Before. Yeah, I've seen you all the time, but... Um, Most extended contact at Splice. Yeah. Um, this piece that we're going to talk about um, was commissioned uh, by one of the Splice ensemble members. Yes. Uh, Keith Kirchhoff. Exactly, Keith Kirchhoff, yeah. And uh, now this piece kind of exists in two forms, or rather maybe two different lengths. Right. So, uh, so how does that work? Like, tell me, tell me about this, and uh, two titles, right? So yeah. kind of tell me about uh, how, how, that's gonna, how that works, and we're hearing the shorter one, but you right. can you know, give us a sense of the shorter and longer, how they, how the, what the relationship is. Sure, sure. So the piece, the, the piece that I started to write was called Los Murmullos, which means the murmurs, murmurers in Spanish. And it's based on a novel by... Um, uh, Juan Rulfo that that uh, was written in the 1950s um, called Pedro Pedro Paramo. My accent is not going to be very good, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, it's a it's a really interesting novel, and I won't get too far into the details of it. But the piece itself uh, ended up being pretty virtuosic, which means lots of notes, and it's I am uh, I'm, I'm a pretty slow composer, so. Um, so I had this whole plan for the piece, and I was working on it, and then I got another commission that kind of pulled me off task. And um, Keith, being the patient man that he is, uh, allowed me to sort of postpone things a bit. But then a performance came up, and he said, do you think you could just like give me something? Uh, turn this into, you know, turn what you have into something workable. So I kind of wrote an ending for, uh, for where I was in the piece, which is maybe like, uh, I don't know, half, probably halfway through. Um, a little less than halfway through, and um, and gave that to him, and so he's been playing that uh, fairly regularly. He's part of his tour, um, and it's great because it's like five minutes long, and uh, to have a five-minute piece, it's pretty noisy and pretty lots of notes and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, the full thing is going to be taxing for him and probably for the audience too. So to have this smaller version is great. Uh, just that you know something I can kind of send out and do stuff with. Uh, but the full version is in progress still. It's still it's one of those pieces that won't die. So. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned that uh, the this the title comes from a book, and I was reading your notes. And in the notes, you mentioned how the murmurs and whispers of the dead eventually overwhelm and suffocate the protagonist in the story. Yeah. Um, is that the point in the story that we are, uh, we're, we're meant to experience that kind of, are, are we at that point in the story with this piece? Are we experiencing that? Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not quite as direct as that. I don't want, I, I, I've been, so I've been writing music based on literature for quite some time now. And, uh, when I first started out, I was pretty uh, direct, like I would, I would not necessarily pick points in the stories to illustrate with music, but I would grab 
uh, specific aspects of uh, some work of literature, a novel, and and build music around that. So it might be something about the form of the novel that I would incorporate, or something about the interaction between two characters that I would try to incorporate. Um, now it's when I do that, it's way more abstract. So I just try to get a feel for the novel, and um, and look at some of the elements that are sort of explored in the novel, and then sort of take it from there. And in a lot of ways, the novel just acts as a reference point. So mm-hmm. if I feel like the, you know, I try to get a sense for the novel and how it's constructed. And then I use that as a kind of a, a test as I go. So um, it helps me with consistency. You know, if I feel like the mood of my piece is starting to stray, then I have a concrete point of reference to, to bring it back to. Um, but I definitely don't think of it in, in terms of a narrative. So there's no, there's no point in the piece at which certain things in the novel happen, for example. But the, the concept of sound being sort of overwhelming is a pretty broad one that the novel visits and that I'm definitely using. And so there are, you know, there's, so the, the piece itself is the electronics in the piece are, um, made with, uh, Modalis, the ear cam software that, that's, uh, physical modeling, uh, software. And, um, and so there's a lot of piano sounds, you know, synthesized piano sounds, which you can manipulate in, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So the that part gets uh, louder, and it kind of goes back and you know the the emphasis go, goes back and forth. Sometimes you can't hear the piano, the the the, right. the actual piano, the, the acoustic piano, terribly well, um, and sometimes they're more matched. Um, so yeah, the it's it's a when I gave it to, to first gave it to Keith, he was like, "Murmurs. These aren't murmurs. This is like not at all murmuring. This is like you know, like baseball bat kind of." Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, you know, that, I guess that's the the contrast or the sort of the irony of the the novel itself. Like these these, the murmurs of the dead are not subtle. They're they're intense. Yeah. Um, you you know you com- uh, Keith com- commissioned this piece, yeah. and I was wondering like how much did he, as a performer, kind of factor into the composition process? A lot. I mean, I, I've been working with Keith for a while now, so I know, you know what, he's, what he's into, for, for one thing, and also what he's capable of. And, uh, and I know that he also spends a lot of time with the pieces that he does. So that, that was great. I mean, just yeah. knowing that part. First of all, he really likes the stuff that I've done that's uh, noisy. You know, he, he's into my noisy stuff. So I did not... I, I've been writing... So... Um, in my sort of compositional trajectory, I got really into noise for a while, and then I kind of backed off on it. And I had a couple of commissions that weren't in, as enthusiastic about my noisy stuff, so I sort of tamped that down a little bit. Uh, and then when I got to this, I felt like I had a backlog of noise building up in me, <laughs> and I knew that Keith was exactly Keith was the perfect vehicle for me to just like dive in and cut, you know, do whatever I wanted to. So. It's uh, so the whole piece isn't noisy, but I, I, it definitely you know it's a factor, and it's not just uh, it's not just uh, electronic noise. I do stuff with like low low piano minor second trills or something that that just kind of if you do that for a while, you get sort of these interesting overtones that pop out. Um, so so there was that, and then there's also really virtuosic passages where he's flying all over the keyboard, and I I, I felt comfortable, you know. He, that can make one nervous as a composer because if it's if it's not uh, approached with uh, a certain amount of I don't know not enough practice let's just put it that way <laughs> then it, it tends to not sound very good so I knew that he would do it and you know the other thing is I feel bad 
you know, I think about this in some of the concerts here where I, these really virtuosic pieces that, that uh, somebody spends a lot of time with for a performance or two. And, and you know, I sort of I try to be aware of not burdening a performer with something that is going to take up hours and hours of their time and, and not be something that they do regularly. So, um, so with Keith, I, you know, I knew he would sort of take it on tour and it would be hopefully worth his time if... If I did it right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that just just knowing that you're going to have a performer who's going to who's really going to spend the time you, you, that that gives you so much more confidence and freedom yeah. as a composer to to just explore what you want to explore and not have to kind of t well, like you said, kind of tamp down your uh, you know your creative process in any way. So that's that's awesome. And and I mean, really, once you get the full piece. Um, done, you kind of have this, that piece has this kind of flexibility built into it. Right. So like, oh, well, you know, I've got a full concert already, but so I'm not going to be able to play the 10 minute or, or however long it's going to be. Yeah. But, you know, we can slot this in. So that that's also really cool. Yeah, right. No, I, and it's not just the time thing. It's also the physicality of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, if he's got a, or if anyone, um, but we'll just stick with him. If he's got a, a, a concert that's got a lot of pieces that are physically taxing, mm -hmm. um, then he can back off on this one. And there's, I mean, it's not just the virtuosic stuff. There's a lot, there's a lot of repeated things where he's banging on the keyboard and in the same place for a while and then suddenly going into really virtuosic things. So that's just hard on his hands, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice for him to be able to sort of, well, it will be nice when the main <laughs> piece is done for him to be able to choose, you know, which version he wants to do based on all the factors. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Modalise works? You said it was a physical modeling software. Yeah. So in this piece, you said you're modeling piano sounds. Does that mean you're modeling strings? Um, yeah, well, it's more than just strings. It's the whole, well, it's parts of the piano. Okay. So yeah, so you build a string and you have uh, a lot of parameters about the string that you can effect. And then I build a bridge and connect the bridge to a soundboard. Mm -hmm. And the it's... Because it's such a complex system, um, it doesn't always, realistic uh, models don't always sound as good as simpler models. So, for example, just connecting, oh, oh another thing is I have two strings that are both connected to the same bridge so that there's an interaction between the two mm -hmm. strings. So, you know, on a piano you have multiple strings per pitch until you get into the bass range. So that interaction between the two strings is really important for the pianist. Uh, piano sound, this is the timbre of the piano. So I do that, and the bridge is detachable, and the soundboard is detachable. So I, there's there's like you know different parts of the piece have more more um, physically realistic piano, not necessarily more realistic sounding stuff. Uh, but it's really fun to work with. It's um, it's built into Max in a couple of ways. But the way that I use it, you write up a script in Lisp, and then load that into a Max patch. The problem is that just broke, so uh, I don't know what's going on with it, but I have, I have a, a working Max patch that um, loads a script, and I can't change the script except by going in and altering it by hand, um, which is really cumbersome, um, because the Modally software no longer generates scripts, and I have no idea why. I didn't do anything. It just suddenly stopped working. I didn't touch it. Yeah. So I've got multiple requests for repair into EarCam, yeah. but... 
Nothing yet. <laughs> Another thing holding up the, the, exactly. the longer version of this. So uh, before we listen to this, uh, can you tell the listeners where they can find more of your work? And if they wanted to reach out, where could they find you online or on social media? Uh, well, the nice thing about my name is there's only one of me. Uh, it's a unique name. So you can always look up Pear Bloland. Uh, and pearbloland.com is my website. Uh, I have a CD of my pieces on Zotic that came out a couple of years ago uh, and SoundCloud, you know, everything's on SoundCloud. So cool. Well, we're going to listen to this piece right now, Los Murmuritos. And uh, it's uh, Keith Kirchhoff that we're hearing on yeah, the recording. His performance. Great. Here we go.
Finally, we have a repeat guest, Jacob Sudol, who was featured on last year's group of Seamus episodes. Jacob is an associate professor of music technology and composition and the coordinator of the music technology area at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. All right, I'm here with Jacob Sudol together at Seamus again. Welcome back to the podcast, man. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's talk about your piece on the festival, and this is for uh, cello and live electronics, right? Mostly. There's a few sound files. Mostly. Um, it's called Trefoil Knots, and this, kind of like many of your pieces, that, at least that I've, uh, that I've heard and I've seen, has a literary point of departure. So can you tell us what inspired you to write this piece and what the literary source is? Yeah, um, so this is the, I think... I consider like the second in a series of four pieces that I wrote that were based upon um, an ancient Japanese novel, um, Tale of the Genji by Lady, um, I want to get this wrong, Lady Murakami, I think, um, or Murasaki, no, or Murasaki, I forget, you might say there, (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember, it doesn't matter, Tale of the Genji, it's famous, it's over a thousand years old. Um, and the first piece I wrote as a piece was also a piece for cello. Like, all the pieces, and there's four in the cycle, all of them are for solo string instruments and live electronics. Um, the first one was based upon a chapter called Vanished into the Clouds, which actually is a chapter that um, doesn't exist. Theories being, on one hand, it was written and then lost, and the other theory being it was never, it's intentionally left blank. Um, it was about when Genji had died, and so the, right after, Genji's alive before that and dead after that. So, one theory is that you know, through the grief, nothing can even be written. So that was the departure point for that piece. And then in Tale of Genji, afterwards, um, everything after that section is a whole. It, the book completely changes, uh, and it's sort of it's the Uji chapters, as they're often to refer to. Um, and it's this sort of there are these two cousins, and they keep kind of like falling in love with different distant cousins who are kind of similar and not the same. So it's like this endless psychological twisted knot, which just keeps unraveling and, and, and winding itself up again. And it's completely modern. It's totally psychological. It's all about like, you know, the, there's very in-depth character analysis and, and interpersonal analysis of relationships. And it's just, it was absolutely fascinating to me. And so um, having written the first piece, um, I just, I've, felt I just had to write more pieces that drew upon these later chapters because there's just something so fascinating to me about this sort of interrelationship that just keeps sort of repeating itself and looping and nodding it together. So that was sort of the literary inspiration for this. This actually, specifically, Trefoil Knots is, uh, if I remember correctly, um, there are three women uh, in, in, in the book who they fall in, that the, two bro- that the two cousins fall in love with and try to seduce, um, you know, to different ends, uh, <laughs> and the fir- okay, the first two die. <laughs> That's an end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the third one, you think she dies, and then she comes back to life at a at a nunnery, you know. And then they come to go get to bring her back, and then the book just ends, and then there's no resolution. Um, so yeah, the first one. This is when the first the first of of the women dies, and uh, yeah, I mean the whole idea of the sort of knotted material is is crucial to I mean, the music itself knots and, and unravels it's kind of hypnotic there's these sort of um shepherd pseudo shepherd tone things in both or we say rhythms that sort of perpetually accelerate as well as perpetually rise um, but never seem to go anywhere and it also just sort of it, it gradually emaciates itself because 
you know, the, 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 the love interest, you know, stars herself to death at the end of the chapter. So, um, yeah. So uh, in, in the middle of the, kind of in the middle of the piece, that's where that kind of rhythmicized shepherd tone yeah, in, the, in the cello happens with the electronics. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a, it's a, um, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a quasi rise rhythm and shepherd tone thing based, and it's using, uh, it uses Grise's like late um, spectra, distorted spectra, that, and compressed, compressed and expanded spectrum, um, which my cellist automatic got on his own. <laughs> Good for him. Um, and so, yeah, there was a sort of a reference to sort of you know the, the uh, death obsessions of late Grise, and there in the sort of the, or the you know vortex temporum, you know, there's sort of literary reference, there's literary abstract references in that material itself. So, that, yeah, that's kind of what's going on in that section. So in, in your notes, you kind of spoke about reflecting on the complexity and cycles of the crossed relationships and consistently denied passion. Can you kind of unpack that and give us like the musical example of how that, how that kind of bore itself out? I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot my program notes like last minute. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there, I mean, you know, I think, you know, tonal music, if you will, I hate that term. Um, you know, a lot of times, like, the idea of, like, there's this tonic-dominant relationship or the intelios, the idea that there's, you know, accumulation of, of tension, which then gets resolved. That doesn't really happen. Things accumulate, and then they stop, and something new happens. That's basically what happens. They accumulate, and then they kind of pitter out a little bit, and then they stop, you know. And so there's that's something which happens repeatedly throughout the pieces. Things just sort of accumulate, not together, and then they just... It just it's just pitters out, you know. So, so other than the kind of you know uh, shepherd, for lack of a better word, shepherd Tony kind of kind of thing that you're doing. What else are you kind of doing with the electronics, and how is it interacting with the cello? Yeah, there's um, there are the, the material itself is sort of you know it's very repetitive, especially in I mean the beginning section. I mean, well, all throughout there's sort of very repetitive yet not entirely repetitive material. So. Um, there's the, I create multiple types of loops which accumulate on top of each other and fade in and fade out, which are largely asynchronous. So, for instance, you take I take a passage of material and I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but um, for instance, like I take a 13 second passage of music and then I loop it at 21 seconds. So there's an asynchronous loop which is created. That there are multiple of these that happen. So you hear the material, but it's constantly interacting and nodding against itself and unweaving and raveling and unraveling with the material. So that kind of creates those, um, especially in the beginning, those kind of like uh, cloud-like or, you know, kind of air-like figures against the cello. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there's a lot of sort of like interference, like, I mean, the, for I think like the first two minutes, it's all, every note is between F and F sharp. Yeah. So it's all just like, you know, it's all just BD fusing and constantly coming and going on top of itself. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there are moments in this where I can't really tell like who is doing what, the cellist or the electronics. And I think that's, you know, that's, that that's kind of the point, yeah. you know, in, in a way, like yeah, exactly. that's the why, yeah, uh, otherwise it would just be for cello. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's entirely the point. It's kind of actually, yeah, it's, it's a very hard piece to perform actually, because like, um, if, if mixed mixed perfectly, you it progressively becomes in the electronics and the original cello progressively become indistinguishable from each other yeah. when I mix it properly. And uh, and then there's also there's I do like this spectral splitting thing, which is nice and surrounds how you hear the cello, which is on stage gradually sort of become disembodied into its different frequential components that sort of move in their own way. 
uh, with the electronics, which are doing the same thing. So it's 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 a beast of a piece to, to play sometimes with electronics. I've, I've I've learned that I have to actually just watch the bow of the cello. Yeah. The whole time, <laughs> like, like the only way to play the piece is like look at the cellist's bow. Um, so ideally, I'm in a position where I can do that. <laughs> is this uh, is is this a multi-channel piece too? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, the recording. I mean, there's this course, of course, there's stereo. Yeah, but it's it's there's a surround sound version as well. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, I'm I'm very fond of. There's a technique I've used in a lot of my string pieces where I um actually a lot a lot of my other pieces too where I um I split the spectrum. I mean, I got this from. I mean, it's not my idea. I, mean, I don't take credit for most anything. Um, is uh, John T. Harrison does this a lot? You know, it's the classic. Take the, the brand, the, the, uh, they take the spectrum and split up into different frequency regions, yeah. and then spatialize each one of those into like four corners of the room. So what's wonderful about this is if you you, know, you can isolate different bands so that you can hear in one area you hear tone, in one area you hear, you hear friction, in another area you hear different components of sound. It's similar to what Paul Kuntz does in pieces like Parallax as right. well. And what's also really nice about it is that it kind of um, it kind of cancel out it cancels out precedence principles. So because like the whole composite sound is surrounding you, so you, there isn't really a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is you know one of the biggest one of my biggest pet peeves of you know so much of electronic music when surround sound. You know there's a sweet spot. No, there's no sweet spot. Like you, wherever you are, you're going to get a different performance. You know you're going to hear some. Everybody's going to hear something special coming out of these like you know fragile harmonies which are constantly being rearticulated and. Um, Lack of a better word, I guess looped. Yeah, looped's a word. <laughs> so it's probably the word. Yeah. You said this was written for your friend and cellist Jason Calloway. How did Jason, as a performer, factor into this work for you? Uh, I've worked with Jason a lot. So um, yeah. So this was the second piece. I mean, he and I, I started working with him um, six years ago when I first started. When I first started FIU, and he had always. Jason's an incredible new music cellist who who we all should know. <laughs> plays in the Armonet String Quartet, which is in residence at Florida International University, where I teach. And um, Jason is, you know, a huge advocate for new music, and he's tremendous at it. And, he, and when I first got hired there, you know, he, one of the things, I, performing instrument, performing works with acoustic instruments and live electronics is sort of like one of the things I'm most passionate about, and I love to do with performers. Um, and he, when he found out that I was into this sort of stuff, he's like, you know, we got to start playing together. Like, I have, I've always wanted to play this great repertoire, but there's nobody who can play it with me like never had I've never had the duo partner so um we I wrote my first piece for him you know in addition to rehearsing and preparing a whole bunch of other repertoire so I spent a lot of time with listening to microphones that are like you know six inches to a foot away from Jason's cello so I have a really I, I, I kind of I have I can sort of hear how Jason plays rather clearly in my head and one thing Jason has incredible uses is his bow control his right hand control is just impeccable you know he can go from like almost silence to tone like it's just it's outstanding what he does with that. So, and so much of his piece is you know from almost silence to tone, you know. And yeah. beyond that, also, he's a, he's a big mute fan, and and I'm a big mute fan. So, <laughs> I remember the first rehearsal we had. I was like, so, um, what kind of mutes you got? <laughs> and he's like, oh boy, that's the right guy. <laughs> so like, I mean, um, when he plays it, and actually, I think um, Steve Moroto actually is probably using the same type of mute he. He uses one of his favorite mutes, and it's indicated in the score. It's called a Simmons metal mute, which is a old mute, I think, from like the 40s and 50s. I believe it's the one that's used on the, um, I think, the Tashi Cateau uh, pour la Fonde de Tom Messiaen recording. Um, it's, I mean, it, it it makes the sound quieter, but it also adds this sort of metallic sheen and resonance oh. to the sound. So it's just it was perfect for the sort of material I was writing. So that factored into a lot to how the piece was written. 
Well, before we listen to this, can you uh, kind of remind everyone where they can find more of your music and connect with you on online or get in touch with you? Sure, sure. Um, JacobSudal.com has not been updated in two years. Uh, <laughs> um, so you can find me there um, if you want more interest. If you want more updated stuff, my SoundCloud uh, is Jacob David Sudal. I think Jacob Dash David Dash Sudal. Or if you just look Jacob Sudolf's SoundCloud, it'll show yeah. up. There's a lot, a lot more recent recordings are on there, um, as well as program notes. So, and there's also videos that float on the internet too. So, all right. Yeah. Well, let's listen to this piece. This is Jacob Sudol and Trefoil Knots, played by Jason Calloway.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.